Well, let's think about it this morning. Turn again. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. So these three sixteens keep popping up, wonderful texts. This is one of them. Second Thessalonians three sixteen. And again we'll read to the end of the chapter. Some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, we were here last week, and this was the same title that you had for your message last week. Well, no, not exactly. Last week was the Lord of Peace making peace. Today it is the Lord of Peace giving peace. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, reading in verse 16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Last week, indeed, our subject was the Lord of Peace making peace. I take the Lord of Peace here. I think the best way to understand it is not referring to God the Father, although God the Father is often called the God of Peace about half a dozen times in the New Testament, but particularly the work of God the Son, the Prince of Peace. This one who would come and be the potentate of peace, if we think of it in that sense. The one who would make peace between ourselves, sinners, criminals, condemned, and our God whom we had offended. And we looked into that in great detail last week, that through the blood of his cross, Christ has made peace for us With his father, God through Christ was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, bringing these people who had been offenders back into his fellowship. You say, well, I'll meet God halfway. Well, you'll be waiting a while. God ain't budging. You will be reconciled to him, not him to you. You understand? If ever peace is made and yet that impossible task, when you think about it, is accomplished through the cross work of Jesus Christ. But today we deal with another kind of peace. There are many aspects to this word. There we were talking about peace as the cessation of hostility, what we would call a state of peace. We were at war with Japan in World War II. We are now at peace with Japan. This deals with Another kind of peace, to quote the eagles, I don't often do that, but that peaceful, easy feeling. In other words, we're dealing with what we would call subjective peace as opposed to objective peace. Christ, through the blood of his cross, brought us into a peaceful relationship, a state of peace with God the Father. Now we are talking about, as a result of that, the peace that flows in our soul. Notice that the first of those is a once and for all thing. Once we have been brought into a state of peace, we are forever in that state of peace with God. This peace, however, internal peace, inner peace, is something that ebbs and flows through our life. But it's a very, very important part of the Christian life, and we'll be examining it this morning. First of all, notice that we are to seek peace. And first question is, what is it? 
And what do we mean by this peace? What does it feel like, if you will? Now, again, we're dealing with the inner subjective side of peace, peace in your soul. Uh, we used to sing the, the in, back in the hippie days of the 60s, I've got peace like a river, peace like a river. Okay? Uh, that's the kind of peace that we're talking about this morning. It is an inner perception of safety versus danger. An inner perception of security versus a place of risk. It is a inner perception of tranquility as opposed to agitation. It is an inner perception of calmness as opposed to vexation of spirit. Anybody besides me ever have to deal with vexation of spirit? Your spirit is perturbed, shaken, moved. It's like, again, the, the picture of the serene uh, pond out there in your backyard. It's just uh, the water just clear and slick as glass, and then someone throws a rock in the middle of it. And suddenly that nice calmness disappears. It is now going through a state of agitation, the ripples going across the pond. Notice that this quest for peace is a universal quest. All men seek it. All men want it, this inner tranquility, this inner sense of peace. To some degree, your perception of what will give you that that peace is what drives you. It's what motivates you in life. It's that which you will then seek, that which you think will give you peace. For most Americans today, we're so materialistic. Materialism runs rampant in our society, and it is our perception of stuff, material things, that will give us peace. If we can just get that new house, get that new car, get that new wife, whatever it happens to be, you see, that will give me the peace that I'm seeking. In other cases, it is the seeking of power. If I can control things... We have this illusion of control sometimes. If I can just dominate, if I, you know, if I've got enough power, if I've got enough guns and ammo, I can, I can, uh, you know, I can ward off the zombie apocalypse. I'm, I'm ready, you know, for the siege. I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe because, you know, I've got my weapons. I've got my ammo. Or the idea, well, if I have just enough power to control things, the situations, then all will be well. And by the way, that works not only with people, but with nations. The idea that if we have a strong enough military, then we don't have to worry. We can sleep at night because we have the power to destroy the enemy that might come against us. With others, it is the persona of fame or acceptance. In other words, I'm I'm okay. I'm in a place of safety and peace because everybody likes me. Uh, they think I'm wonderful. Now, we preachers don't have to worry about that too much. Uh, but uh, some of you might, you know, I, I uh, just as long as I'm in the right, I think of these young people, if I'm in the right peer group, if I've got the right friends, if I'm, uh, you know, I'm captain of the football team and so forth, then I'm in this state of peace. With others, it is found through the use, or I should say misuse, of alcohol, drugs, sex, And those things become that which numbs me. My peace is found in being numbed 
to reality. Which, which then leads us to an observation that inner peace is only found through the perception of a reality of outward peace. Somehow, I didn't see your mouth drop open with that wonderful insight. And it, and it is important enough that I want to say it again. Let me say it again. Inner peace is found through the perception of outer peace. That there is a state of peace out there that allows me to have inner peace in here. In other words, inner peace springs from the perception from a sense that all is well out there. All is well in here with my soul, as we sometimes sing, because all is well out there. That danger is far away. A state of safety and security exists out there. Let me give an example. For instance, you have a fear uh, that you might have cancer. Perhaps you've got some symptoms that worry you. You go to the doctor, he gives you an MRI scan and comes back with the news. No, there's no cancer. Whew. Glad to hear that. Now I can be at peace. You see, because the situation out there is peaceful, then everything's okay in here. Or, you know, you get a letter from the IRS. You know those. And all of a sudden, where goes your peace? Right out the window. Till you talk to your accountant and says, no, this is no big deal. Pay a little penalty and so forth. No big deal. Whoo, whoo. Or let's suppose you get arrested. They're talking about throwing you in the slammer. And then you go talk to an attorney and he says, oh, don't worry about this. I can get you off. In other words, notice how your inner peace is related to the outer peaceful circumstances. To a reality of peace out there. And by the way, you can lose your peace by just the opposite. You know, I'm fine. I'm healthy. Then you get that MRI back that says, no, you're not. Oh, I'm financially secure until you get that letter from the IRS. And, no, you're not. You understand what I'm saying? Your, your inner peace is related to a state of outer peace, a perceived state What you perceive to be reality out there is what controls your state of peace or your lack of peace within. The inner corresponds with the outer, especially when the information that you receive comes from a trusted source. When someone I trust tells me that all is okay, then I'm at peace. I think of a child. You ever had the child that can't go to sleep, scared of the monster in the closet, waiting for you, the parent, to come in and to assure them that there is no monster in the closet. Well, maybe there is a monster in the closet, but you're going to tell them there's no monster in the closet. No, he's under your bed. You know, bye-bye. Turn the light out. In other words, the child is in a state of agitation, can't sleep. Until the parent comes in and assures them that the reality out there is not as they perceive it. You get the idea? As long as the child perceives there's a monster in the closet, you're not getting any sleep. 
As long as they think that's the reality, till the parent whom they trust comes in and says, no, there is no monster in the car, or goes and shows them there is no monster in the car. Now there's a new reality, and that new reality brings peace within. We have the same thing on a national scale. We just let us have some sort of a natural disaster or a war act of war. And, and what is the first thing that happens? Our president, our leader gets on TV to assure everybody that everything's okay. It is important that our nation have this perception of safety. I I think of Churchill during World War II when things were so dark and bleak for England, going on the radio and giving them this assurance that we're going to fight them on the land, on the sea, in the air, wherever we are, and we're going to do it till we're victorious. You know, we want to hear this from somebody we trust telling us that it's going to be okay. And then there is this thing that we might call religious peace. That all is well with my soul. A peace, again, that corresponds to a sense of reality, to a perception that all is well between me and my God. That if I have that perception that all is well between me and God, then I can have a peace that all is well with my soul. It's found in trusting what we might call religious testimony. I said the child gets peace from trusting the counsel of the parent. In this case, it is putting your trust in what religion says to you. And it may be true peace, it may not be. It all depends on whether what you're being told corresponds to reality. Let me give you the greatest illustration of this is back in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. Would you turn back there a moment? Jeremiah was sent to prophesy to Judah right before the Babylonians came and destroyed them. In fact, uh, it's a hopeless case. By the time he comes on the scene, God tells Jeremiah, don't even bother praying for him. I won't hear your prayers. We call him the weeping prophet because he weeps over the destruction that is about to come on the city of Jerusalem. And he's there to witness it. So, uh, you know, the, the Jeremiah, is, he's, he's not a real funny, high, happy, uppity kind of guy. He's, he's, this is sort of a downer. And he's constantly in trouble. At one point, he's thrown in a pit, left there to die. Uh, he's mistreated by those that think he's subverting the defense of the city and so forth. But read this in Jeremiah, in chapter 6, in verse 10. Now, let's go back to verse 9. Jeremiah 6, verse 9. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. In other words, they're going to pick you clean. Your enemy's going to come in and pick all the grapes and leave nothing but the vine behind. They've turned back thine hand like a grape gatherer into the baskets. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach, and they have no delight in it. In other words, I can tell them, I can send prophets. They're not going to listen. They're not going to hear. They don't want to hear. Therefore, God says, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I'm weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together, for even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the aged with him that is full of days, and their houses. How would you like to have this said about you? Your houses shall be turned unto others with their fields and their wives 
together. I'm going to give your land. I'm going to give your home. I'm going to give your family, your wife, to somebody else. Together, for I will stretch out mine hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. An example of priest and prophet dealing falsely is found in the next verse. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, here you have priests and prophets all saying to Israel, everything's going to be all right, don't worry, don't get concerned. And God is saying, you won't listen, you won't hear. And here we have these prophesying falsely, peace, when there is no peace. Notice, The priests and prophets are giving them a perception that the reality is a state of peace between them and their God. And all is going to be well. When the real reality, that's strange. You know, Francis Schaeffer talked about true truth. (laughs) But he he tried to differentiate it from people's perception of truth with that which is true truth. Well, here is true peace. The real reality, as it were is that you are in a state of war with your God, and he's about to give you over to the enemy. And you have all these priests and prophets patting you on the back, saying everything's going to be all right. He's saying that's the healing of their wound slightly. It's like putting a Band-Aid over a gaping wound. And temporarily they're soothing this, but this peace is a false peace. Go on over to Jeremiah 10 a moment. I'm sorry, 14. Jeremiah 14, verse 13. Now here, you heard from God there. Now you hear from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 14, verse 13. Then said I, this is Jeremiah speaking. Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. What does that mean? Assured peace. A peace that you can be assured of. Confirmed peace. Guaranteed peace. God is going to give you this assured peace. And verse 14, then the Lord said unto me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spoke unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. So do you understand how this thing works, especially in the area of religion? That we have in some cases people who believe they're in a state of peace with God, that all is well with their soul, but we see examples here, and there are many, many others that I could give you, but here in Jeremiah's day, people who were believing this message that all is well with your soul when all was not well with their soul. So again, the question is, the reality that gives you this inner peace, is it real reality? Is it, does it correspond to what is true? Well, you say, well, what then determines true peace? Well, I would call it gospel peace. True gospel peace. That to truly be in a state with God, as we looked at at length last week, is found in the facts of the cross work of Jesus Christ. Therein lies that objective revelation 
uh, again, I'm, I'm, you know what I mean by subjective and objective. Subjective is how you feel about it. It's like um, some of the women come to me after church and said, I froze, it was freezing in there. Well, that's your perception. That's your internal thing. I go over and look at the thermostat on the wall. No, it says 70 degrees. It's not freezing. That's objective. Doesn't doesn't settle the women down, but you understand what I'm saying. There's the perception. Some of you this morning are undoubtedly cold. Some of you are undoubtedly hot. That's how you feel. Actually, it's just one temperature in here, right? There is the perception of what it's like. That's your subjective opinion. And then there is the reality. Okay? That's what it actually is. Doesn't depend on how you feel about it. It's what it is. So we're dealing with this mystery of subjective peace. How do I get it? And what I'm pointing out to you that a lot of people have a subjective peace in the area of religion, and yet it is based on false facts. It is based on that which does not correspond to reality. I see Chuck down here nodding his head. He was for years a Roman Catholic. And um, again, how many we know that came out of that system that is uh, telling you, if you want to have peace with God, here's what you got to do. And then one of their primary things is when the uh, priest is given his benediction, may the Lord give you peace. Now that you're right with God by doing the Mass, doing your penance, going to the confessional, now God gives you peace. You understand, it depends on what you're trusting, what you're looking at out there externally. Go to Romans 5 a moment as we see where this inner peace comes from. Romans 5. Remember that Paul from the first of this letter, has been proving man's hostility to God, the enmity between God and man because of the fall, man's sinfulness, man's wickedness. And then in chapter 3, he throws out the gospel. And now we have this other way of being righteous before God than standing before him in our own righteousness. We have a righteousness that is given to us through faith in His Son, through faith in the work that Christ did as a propitiation for our sins. You you sort of follow the argument. And here in chapter 5 now, Romans 5, now we look at the benefits, the effects of being in a state of peace, being reconciled to God. Look at the first thing out of the chute. Good old Texas expression. First thing out of the chute here. Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now entered into a state of peace. Once we have now been justified, declared not guilty, forgiven of our sins, we are now in a state of peace. It's an assured peace, for it rests in the work of another it work, it rests in the validated works of another, namely the Son of God, validated in that God raised His Son from the dead. I want you to understand how our doctrine informs our peace. A lot of people say, I can recall in my days in Wyoming, I got this newsletter from this group down in Arizona somewhere. And uh, they were, on the first page, we don't believe in doctrine. 
We just worship Jesus. And the first thing that went through my mind is, which Jesus? You see, I was there in Evanston, Wyoming, a town about 80% Mormon, dominated by the Mormon church. And the Mormons believe in a Jesus, but he's not the Jesus you and I believe in. He is simply the first spirit offspring of God the Father. You and I were born a little later. He's just like you and me, except he's just our elder brother. He is in no sense the divine Son of God any more than you and I are sons of God in that sense. So in other words, the first thing went to my mind, wait a minute, you just want to worship Jesus, with which Jesus do we worship? Do we worship that Jesus? How about the Jesus of the Gnostics, who just appeared to be flesh in some cases, the Docetics? How about the Jesus of the Nazarenes that was adopted? He was just a human being like you and me, adopted by God the Father. you got all these Jesuses running around out there. Down in South America, half the people down there named Jesus. Right? Which Jesus are you talking about? That's where doctrine comes into play. And it is important in that it is our doctrine that informs our peace. You ask me, why is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things so important? Because if God is not absolutely sovereign over all things, the peace that we're talking about this morning simply doesn't exist. If that God can be thwarted, if he's changeable, if he gets up tomorrow in a bad mood than the mood he was in today, if he's changeable, mutable, then you have no firm reality out there that you can hang your soul's hope on. If God is just trying to do his best. You know, God wants to save folks. He wants to do this, but you and I, we, you know, our free will won't let him. If it is our free will that circumscribes the throne of God and he can only do what you and I let him, we're in trouble, folks. Do you understand why this is so important that this God will never change his mind? His character is fixed and set. He's an eternal God. What he was yesterday, he is today, and will be tomorrow. And that he, you know, it's one thing to have good intentions, but it's another thing to have the power to back it up. And we learn that our God is omnipotent, that there is nothing that can thwart him, nothing that can stay his hand, as the old prophets would say, or say unto him, what doest thou? There is none that can stop him from what he's started now, I realize there are those who say, oh, that's terrible doctrine, that's terrible. You're, yeah, but my friend, that's the only thing that's going to give you an eye peace if we worship a God like that. Or the fact that what we needed done for our soul is found in another, in the person of Jesus Christ. You throw that out the, way, out, out the door, your peace goes with it. If God didn't send someone to do exactly what we needed done, exactly who we needed... And did it once and for all, it's over and done, then we can have no place of settled peace. That's what drove Luther almost insane as a monk. Again, I, I quote that off-quoted quote. I quote that off-quoted quote. Okay. By Luther. He said, if ever a monk could get to heaven by his monkery, I would have been that monk. He, he tortured himself. 
trying to do works of penance. He was staying in the confessional for hours and hours trying to remember all of his sins because if he forgot one, he's in trouble. Till the priest would tell him, get out of here, go sin some more and then come back. Here's a guy who is obsessed with finding peace. With God. And that's what then, when the gospel dawned upon Luther, what a marvelous thing this is, that my peace is not found in me, it's found in him. And I can have all sorts of questions about whether I'm good enough, but I have no question that he was good enough. And if he did it for me, who then can take away my peace with God? My peace then can be absolute because my God is completely, absolutely satisfied in the work of his son. See Kenny back there holding that thumb up. Absolutely. That is where Paul, in his wonderful, as he goes on in the book of Romans, to Romans 8, finally hits the pinnacle, the pike's peak, if you were, of his argument. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And you say, well, that means that everything's just going to be rosy. Uh-uh. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Notice, he's going to go on in Romans 8 and talk about, shall tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or... Uh, he's going to list a whole bunch of things that would do their best to destroy your peace. But he says, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Why? But because if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall not he with him then also freely give us all things? Who is he? Who's going to condemn us? God that justified us? The son of God that went to a cross to shed his blood that we not be condemned? Who's going to, who's going to condemn us? The omnipotent, sovereign God was behind my salvation. And who can thwart it? Who can stop it? The judge has died for me. And so therein lies the possibility of this peaceful, easy feeling within us. Turn over to John 14. This is the last night that Jesus was together with his disciples before his arrest sometimes called the last discourse of our Lord. In John 14, Jesus says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, Neither let it be afraid. Now let those words sink in. He's saying, don't let your heart be troubled. That phraseology implies that I can let it be troubled, right? But he said, don't let it be troubled. Because why? I'm giving you peace. I'm giving you what he calls here, my peace. Now where's that peace coming from? If you back up one verse in verse 26, you'll see that that peace is intimately connected with the ministry of the one he calls here the comforter, whom he explains is the Holy Ghost. 
Let me read that verse. This is one verse before Jesus saying, peace, I leave with you. He says, but the comforter is the Holy Ghost, whom my Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace, I leave unto you. Do you see the connection between this peace and the ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's no great mystery then that later on when Paul is rattling off the fruit of the Spirit, we have love, joy, peace. This is the product of the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, that preceding verse makes it clear that this is not some mystical peace that comes in us. We don't know why we're at peace. We just got this suddenly, this peaceful, easy feeling. Notice the connection in verse 26 and 27 between the comforter teaching you all things and bringing all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, please don't misunderstand. If we look at the flow of redemptive history, he's not talking about the Spirit coming like a voice, speaking in your ears, reminding you of the things that Jesus said. What he's talking about is what we call the Scripture. That it is in these Scriptures that we find the words of Christ. In other words, that this peace comes from an intelligible understanding of Christ, of His person, of His work. We get this peace when we get Him. And I don't mean get Him merely in the sense of possessing Him, but when we understand what He was doing on that cross. When we get the picture of what He came to do, what He accomplished at Calvary, then we can have His peace. It comes as a consequence of the Holy Spirit applying to us the words of Christ that we find here in Holy Scripture. Then turn over to John 16. In John 16, verse 33, he ends this discourse with these words. These things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you get the difference? In me, you'll have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. We can ask for a show of hands, how many of you are in him? Well, I hope that would be a number. If I ask how many of you are in the world, well, we're all still in the world. And as long as we're in the world, we're going to have tribulation. That's the guarantee. Do you realize the one who is saying, I'm leaving you peace, I want to give you my peace, is about to walk across the Kidron Valley, be arrested, take up and mocked and scourged, beaten, bruised, nailed to the cross. This is the one saying, I'm going to give you my peace. And some of you might be saying, if that's peace, I want nothing of it. The one who says, in the world you will have tribulation, is about to go out and be tribulated by the world. you understand? In other words, your peace will never come from the world. The world offers peace. People are dying to get the peace that the world gives. Found, as I mentioned a moment ago, in money and possessions and safety, this, that, or the other. And the problem with the thing, the peace that the world gives, it's vacillating, it's temporal at best, here today, gone tomorrow. That's why the waves of the ocean is used in Scripture as a picture of the state of the world. What's down this moment will be up the next moment. What's up this moment will be down the next. 
What Jesus is talking about is a peace that transcends this world, that will allow you to have a state of peace within, regardless of what the world is doing to you without. Because the world no longer is the reality that you were walking by. There is a new reality. It is the reality of faith. Remember the text? We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We walk, 2 Corinthians 4, last verse, we walk seeing things which can't be seen. We, we walk seeing things that are eternal rather than temporal. You'll notice if you walk by faith, you have a peace that is based on spiritual circumstances rather than physical circumstances. Right? That's what faith sees. Faith sees the spiritual rather than the physical. I'm thinking of Elisha with his servant. You know, they're out there surrounded by the Syrians in the city. And Elisha prays for his servant, Lord, open his eyes. Nothing to worry about here. And suddenly he sees angels in chariots surrounding the Syrians, between them and the Syrians. In other words, suddenly... God opened this man's eyes that he would see the spiritual reality. It wasn't that he was making this up. It's not, oh, I hope. It's it's not the Joel Osteen type of faith. Self-improvement. You know, if you believe, it's like the little engine that could. If I believe everything's going to be okay long enough and hard enough, then it'll be okay. No. This is seeing things that are true, that are real, but they're spiritual. And as a result, they are Unseen rather than seen. I mean, we get all excited about stuff we can see. The Bible gets all excited about stuff you can't see. Jesus went into a home in Capernaum and he was teaching there. And suddenly you remember the story. They let down this guy through the roof. They literally tear the roof off. Lowering this guy who's sick of the palsy, he can't walk, he's paralyzed on his bed. They lower this guy down on the floor. What a dramatic moment. A dramatic pause. What is going to come out of Jesus' mouth next? And everybody in that room would have bet money on the fact that the first words out of his mouth are, Man, take up your bed and walk. That's not what he said. He said, Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. And I can almost hear a collective sigh. Oh, shucks. I thought we was really going to get to see something. Because when you look at the man, does he look any different? Jesus has just said, man, thy sins are forgiven you. Christ, and that's the problem with the scribes and Pharisees sitting over here in the corner. They say, wait a minute, who do you think you are to forgive sins? I mean, sin is that which you do to God. Who do you think you are to forgive a debt that is directed at God? But Jesus just said, man, thy sins be forgiven thee. Are they? Can you look at him and tell? He's the same guy. He still can't walk. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, okay, so that you will know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Man, get up and walk. There's your visible demonstration of what has happened within. Do you get what's going on here? Would you rather have your sins forgiven, which no one can see, 
or to be able to walk that everybody can see. Which is the greater miracle? In fact, that's what Jesus said leading up to this. Which is greater? Which is harder to do? Forgive a man's sin or say, take up your bed and walk. Which is the greater miracle? It's that miracle that nobody can see because it's in here. But we want to see it. We want the visible demonstration. Or we will see it in how we live and how we then operate from that point on. But regeneration within is the big miracle. The Pentecostals talk about leg lengthenings, speaking in tongues, prophesying. I want the big one. Regeneration. Salvation. Forgiveness of sin. Why don't they want that one? Because you can't see it. And so notice that this inner peace flows from things that the world can't see. They're spiritual, not physical. They're invisible rather than seen. And they are future, in many cases, rather than present. Do you realize the people that Paul is writing to in our text, the Lord of peace give you peace always in all ways, okay? The people that he's writing this to are going through hell on earth. You read the first letter he wrote to them just about six months before he wrote this letter. They're being mocked by their fellow citizens, their property being confiscated. They're going through the fire. And then he says, the Lord of peace give you peace always in all ways. You say, wait a minute, what, what kind of peace is this? Because you see, it's based on that which is future. If we just read a little earlier in the second epistle of Paul, we would say, we would hear him say, you who are troubled, you're going through some unrest, you're losing your peace here. You that are troubled, rest with us when the Lord will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, just hold on. This is just temporary. This is not the permanent situation And so this peace that flows from a reality that men cannot see with their eyes because it's spiritual rather than physical. It's unseen rather than seen. And in many cases, it's future rather than present. But that's the reality that the eye of faith sees. God has promised us Eternal life. God has promised us eternal life. The God who cannot lie. The God who is not fickle. Everybody gets upset because we believe in Tulip. Well, what's your alternative? The daisy? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. (laughs) Where's your peace in that? Do you understand? I, I realize I'm being silly here. But to some degree, it begs that question, if that's how fickle God is, how then can you be in peace? But if God never changes, if what He's ordained for me came to me in spite of me, not because me, came to me, came to me through the work, the substitutionary work of His own Son on Calvary's cross, then nothing can rob me of that peace. That's the reality out there. That gives rise to the peace in my soul, regardless of what I'm going through. Cancer, financial failure, arrested, as some may be before too long. 
Do you understand? It is that fact that that's the reality. And it's not that we're making this up. It's not that we're we've concocted some sort of myth. This is what God's word has revealed to us. This is the truth. And it is that truth that then gives rise to the peace in my soul. I I hope this is getting through to you. I don't mean that that means life is all going to be rosy, a piece of cake. What it does mean is no matter how hard and how strong the winds of this world blow, how massive are the waves that crash over your life, that you have an anchor for your soul, fixed, immovable. And you may bob around up here on the surface, but if you are connected to that anchor that is fixed and steadfast, you can never be blown too far, can you? Because there is your rock. There is the foundation of your peace. Now, let me close. It's figuratively speaking. No, just just two things. Jesus began that discourse. I'm thinking earlier that night. Let not your heart be troubled. Y'all know that text? Let not your heart be troubled. Get that let again. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, let me be the focus of your reality. As you would receive the word of God and believe it, now receive my word and believe it. I'm going away, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. You believe that. There's not a lot in this world that's going to disturb your peace. For that peace is a peace that reaches beyond the tribulations of this world. It reaches beyond the grave. It is the peace that Paul talked about in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. And the peace of God, which passes understanding. I mean, it, it's, it just blows our mind. You can't, you can't really understand. The peace of God, which passes understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Fix your soul on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever your peace is perturbed, disturbed, your peace is being robbed from you, you know why? You have taken your eyes off Christ. That's why. It's just like Peter getting out of that boat. The Lord said, come. And so he gets out of that boat. He's walking on the water, going over to the Lord till he gets his eyes on the wind and the waves and he starts sinking. You say, well, he didn't believe hard enough. No, that wasn't the problem. The power for him to walk on water was not in the fact that he believed he could. It was in the command of our Lord, come. Again, it's not a matter of how hard you believe. It's on whom you believe. There is the source 
of true peace in your life. And if you have it, nothing in this world will rob you from it. That's why we see martyr after martyr taken to the stake at peace with God. I think of old Thomas Cramner in the jail there in Oxford to be burned at the stake the next morning. The mayor of Oxford, who was a friend, came to visit him that night and said, I came to visit you. I was afraid you wouldn't get much sleep tonight. And Cramner said, oh, no, I suppose I'll sleep about as well today, tonight as I would any other night. He said, breakfast may be a little bitter, but supper will be most sweet. That's the peace that has buoyed many as they face their own death, as they face the tribulation of this world. And then finally, as much as I would long to give you who truly know the Lord peace, I long just as hard to utterly demolish any peace you would have if you don't know Christ. Because that's the first step of finding this true peace, is that your eyes are open to what is real. The prodigal son thought reality was out there in that far country, and he took off from his old dad and went out there and squandered everything he had, wound up wanting to eat out of a pig trough. Till he came to himself. God brought him to see reality. May God do the same thing in your heart and life. If you're deluding yourself with this fiction that the world throws out to you, that your peace will be found out there. May God, well, may He shatter your idol. May He end your delusion that you might see that peace, the peace I'm talking about, only flows from this relationship with God whom we've offended, being restored through His Son, Jesus Christ. May God be pleased to do it in your heart, in your life. Oh, that I would not be one of those voices that we hear Jeremiah talking about who said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. I want you to find true peace in the person and the work of God's Son. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us in this area. We see the quest for it. Father, finding peace within is big business. All kinds of things going on under the banner of giving peace. Father, we see here that true peace is that peace that Christ gives. His peace the peace of being in the will of his Father, the peace of pleasing his Father rather than man. Lord, may we know something of that. May we find this peace that Christ speaks of that floods our soul. Father, what more could you say to us than that which you've said? You promise us eternal life. You promise us that whatever is happening in our life is happening for the good. What more could you say than that which you've said? Lord, our problem is not needing more information, some new vision, some new prophecy. Lord, what we need is to truly believe what you have spoken in your word. 
And Lord, may thy spirit come and do that work, showing us the things of Christ, the things that belong to our peace through him. Bless us as we seek your face. May we know something of this subject. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.